How many of you, uh, just by raise of hands, love getting gifts? All right, well, I don't have any for you this morning, but. But I love the idea, don't you? Now, of all the, of all the times that I think of the course of our family and our upbringing and, and just my life, there, there are different moments in time where you look forward to it and your children look forward to giving gifts. Now, I understand you might be thinking, oh, that's the Christmas, right? The Christmas gift. For us, it was not Christmas so much as it was birthdays. Birthdays of all times and uh, in, the, in the course of our kids' life, that was the time for us that we splurged greater than any other. Oh, I can remember those precious moments where uh, we have been gathering uh, various components. Now my kids get to the point where they're not writing Christmas lists for me. They're writing birthday gifts, and it's long. And they know that something or some amount of that is likely going to appear for them on that day. But it's an exciting day because you, we're, there's all kinds of preparation going on. For us and our family, uh, it, it ensues the reality of saying, all right, birthday, this is part of my favorite part because I like food, okay? You know that already, okay? But you get to choose your birthday meal. That, that in and of itself is a gift, and then all the other gifts are just a benefit of that gift that overflows, but I remember it, in ours, in, in a sense, you, uh, that birthday individual, they would finally get to the point after their birthday meal, after the celebration, after cake and all those things, they would go sit on the couch and they would wait. And I can remember this for our younger children as now we're giving gifts at various times and it still goes on even now. Uh, so it just doesn't matter, whoever that person sitting on the couch is, there they are with their hands out, with their eyes closed waiting for something to be put there. And one after another, okay, in, in, in to some degree in our family, wrapping the gift was not even that significant. It was wearing the gift and wearing it out. If they got me a shirt, somebody was coming out and they were wearing it. I remember my little children coming out with an oversized shirt like, Dad, look what we got you. You know, and it wasn't even so much the gift it was the look on the face of, of, of that individual who was bringing that out to say, this is for you. You know what? Our Heavenly Father is one of the most incredible, majestic gift givers you could ever come to know. A person who not only just gives gifts, and he does that in multiple ways, but he loves giving them. He loves it when you see his son, the gift of eternal life, and you say, I prize and value him. And he gives you far beyond that. He gives you what, we, what the Bible calls the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. And he loves it. And, and all the, the, the biblical authors and various components, James being one of them, writes this very precious statement. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, he, will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Oh, I just love the, the picture of the Heavenly Father 
of the prodigal son in the story in the New Testament where the father was just waiting for the son and looking out. And when he came back, he just embraced him. And what did he do? He killed the fatted calf and he said, my son is home. That father was the picture of the most benevolent God of heaven who waits for individuals to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, so that they can be saved and receive on their behalf through the work of Christ by repentance and faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Believers, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, you have the most precious gift that anyone could ever give you. And no one can take that away. It is this father who is displayed in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua to a people who had been exiled in Egypt for 400 years, who brings a deliverer like Moses, who, who supplies a replacement like Joshua to lead them to the promised land so that he could give it to them as a gift. I mean, this is what the, the bad part about the, the first time that they came to the brink of the promised land and the 12 spies entered in. You know what he wanted them to do? He wanted the spies to go in and see the expansiveness of the land so that when they came back, they would report to the people, oh, our God is so good. He is going to give houses that we didn't build and farms that we didn't, we didn't plant. He is, going to, he is going to allow us to experience something far beyond what you could ever imagine. Because why, did, why does he want that? Oh, Christian, he wants you and I as believers to understand that good gifts come from a good God. And the only, only reason things are any, have any sense of goodness whether moral or, or, or intellectual, is because God exists. And this good gift giver now stands with the people and stands with his replacement, Joshua, on the brink of the promised land, encouraging Joshua in the text before us to say, I'm going to be with you. This theme, this presence, this perspective of God that we will continue to see over and over again that he would bring them in to one of the greatest gifts of the promised land that they have now been wandering around the wilderness. You know, I, I just think to myself, you know, they were probably sick of manna and quail. We know it. But they were on the cusp of the moment when they crossed over into the land that God would call them to and give it to them as a gift. And, the, and Moses says in Deuteronomy... Be careful, Israel, lest you get into the land and all of a sudden you be puffed up in pride and say, look at this house that is mine. Look at this land that I farmed. Look at these good gifts that, that I get to have, that somehow it's by your own strength and by your own greatness, that somehow it's either due to you or you deserve it. He said, oh, Israel, be careful because there is a time coming where there will be retribution. If the mindset of your heart is filled with pride, you will fall. But this God, this benevolent heavenly Father who seeks to give gifts, has his people at this moment, moment excited with a replacement of a new leader 
Moses is gone. It begs this question, doesn't it? As we look in verse 4, just to catch us up into the context, notice in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. I mean, all of the oral understanding of Abraham wandering around through the land, being called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, wandering and in a tent, and all of a sudden they says, and he said right before they went into Egypt, he said, I will bring you back to this land, I promise you. And now he, he shares, uh, Josh, as Joshua writes, he shares the extent of, of this land which is given over and over again in multiple places in Deuteronomy, and it is here as well. I want you to notice it uh, as we think about this particular land. It would be helpful if I turn it on. Uh, there we go. Notice the expansiveness of this gift that far supersedes what you would see in, in, uh, in present-day Israel. See, the land that God had given to them was not like, here's an itty-bitty gift. It's like he wanted them to experience it from the land of Lebanon, from the northern parts of Lebanon, which is the highest part in the north where you see that stop, to all the way down to the great river, the Nile, all the way over to the east to the great river Euphrates, and all the way to the west as far as the great sea, the great Mediterranean Sea. He wants to give it all to them. And the people now looked at the other side of the Jordan, at the expansiveness of this land, and they knew there were giants waiting for them. They had their parents' memories readily available to them of what happened the first time. But here they are, gathered in strength, gathered in number, gathered alongside their leader, Joshua who is told this admonition in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you, before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, this is something that's interesting in the whole concept and picture of the book of the land of Joshua and the conquest. Because you start at the beginning of the book in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4, and we ask ourselves the question, wow, this, what, what is the boundaries of this great, precious, promised gift? And here they are. And you get to the end of the conquest, and if you started to match up the boundaries, you realize that they had yet to experience all of the land. Now, that ought to leave you as a Bible student, by the way, saying, something's coming. Something's yet to happen that's supposed to happen. And all throughout the conquest, in, in city after city, that they would take control, there was something that was left. He says it's the great the, the people of the land of the Hittites, the land between, the people of Canaan. We'll trace those uh, individuals to see historically where they come from at a later point as we get into various battles. But what we see is the nation was called to fully possess the land, and yet at the end of Joshua, they hadn't done it. 
In fact, if we could fast forward a little bit to the kingdom time period of David and even the greatest kingdom of Israel, which was Solomon, even there they had yet to experience, to occupy all the extent of these boundaries. And again, it says to you, if the presence of the Lord will go with him and his promises are sure and they haven't experienced it yet and he won't ever fail them, then something's coming. Something is still waiting. Someone is still going to rule. Someone is going to inherit the land. Well, who will those people be? Jeremiah chapter 16 says this. He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, As the Lord lives who brought you, uh, brought you up, the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought you up, the people of Israel, out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I have given to their fathers. I mean, here, notice, even in the time of the prophetic statements of Jeremiah, we could go to Isaiah, we could go to various components, and the prophets, who the kingdom had long been gone after division and exile from the north, and exile to the kingdom of Judah in the south, and the prophets are coming back and saying to the people of Israel, there is hope. We will be brought back to our land. We will have a king. The Davidic covenant is true. And could you imagine being in exile at that point? Much like the people experienced in Egypt, here they were waiting and longing for these precious promises. You could go to Amos chapter 9, and I don't have it up before you, but it says this in Amos the prophet, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. He says, I will plant them, in verse 15 of Amos 9, on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of, the, out, out of that land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. He anchors when, he, when there is no greater person to anchor a promise to, he anchors it to himself. The unchangeable, majestic God who says, no one can take a promise away that I have promised to my people. The prophets longed for the people of Israel to experience, even in the days of David, the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, when it, is, when it says there, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, remember when we first started our journey in the, in the book of the conquest, and we, and we said there's all these tiers of interpretation and questions that we have to ask? And I said, always remember, there's a redemptive story there's a story about God's working in the life of depraved people who need salvation. And so what he does is he takes the world who is destitute for hell and sin because of their sin, and then he chooses himself a people 
And he chooses Israel, and he makes them promises to be a great nation. And then he promises them a king who would come, who would be their Messiah, who would sacrifice himself according to Isaiah, of which his kingdom there would be no end, Isaiah 9 says. He will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father. Oh, that kingdom is coming. And you and I, believers, if you have repented of your sin and trusted him in him, you, you will experience these days like there will be no other in history. These days are coming. So he says, the Apostle Paul says, just to catch us up, in Romans 11, verse 25, he said, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And that kingdom by God's promises, began when he brought himself out a people, secured them a land, and promised them a king. All of these promises to the people of Israel are this promise of land and the promise of the Davidic ruler will be fulfilled in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Of which Our Lady spent the entire weekend talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount, of which all these kingdom principles are supposed to be lived out. As a foreshadowing to say, if you belong to the kingdom, this ought to be what you look like. Well, what's the point of our text today? Here's our main idea. Wherever God calls his people to go, Whatever God calls his people to do, he would give them success as long as their faith stayed focused on his promises and his principles. Whether that was back then as they were standing on the brink of the promised land and they were yet to go in and say, we're, we're going to take these giants and our kids will be okay. Wherever God called them to go, whatever God would call them to do, they would find success as long as they, their faith stayed focused on his promises and his principles. So let me just say this in a nutshell. Not much has changed for, for the people of God, has it? Wherever God calls you to go, whatever God calls you to do, you will find success as you stay focused in your faith on God's promises and principles. See, your job and my job is not to acquire for ourselves an earthly existence that's carefree, suffering-free, so that we can say, ah, now that was fun. It's not about our fun. It's not about our comfort. It's about our following and who we're following and what we're following. And that's what God wanted to give them in a leader like Joshua as he commissioned him in the first nine verses was just saying, I'm going to exemplify it in the leader. I'll bestow him with the spirit of wisdom and leadership and you need to follow him as he follows the very principles and promises of God. Now here's the caveat. The moment your leader were to ever, whether it was Joshua's time 
or whether it's our present day and we talk about Cape Bible Chapel, the moment your leaders not begin not to be attentive to the promises and principles of God, don't follow. You have a duty and a responsibility to God. And if all of a sudden a congregation follows a leader straight into doing wrong, not only will the leader stand accountable, but his following of people will be standing accountable as well. This is very true in Revelation, by the way, when the leaders of the churches, the elders, were called into account as they represented the churches, and this is said of them, I will, if you don't do what is right, I will snuff out your candle. If we don't bind ourselves together as a congregation to say that the truth matters in a culture where the, where the truth is relevant to whatever you want to think, we will easily be led astray by every wind of doctrine and every perspective of thought and every political nuance and, and difference that you will see. We will be guided by someone and something else and it won't be the truth. Let's help each other. That's what the Bible calls the people to do. Bind themselves together. Joshua was called to lead them so that wherever God would call him to go and whatever God would call him to do, he would be faithful to those precious promises and principles. They wore the lifeblood of the people. This morning as we talk about this, I want to go and talk about three reasons why Joshua and God's people would experience success in the conquest. Because we can expect as if what uh, verse number five says, that every place where your foot treads, you will find success. Every place you go, then we would expect that there's a reason why, and there's, the reason is God, and it's our duty to see him. Joshua is a record of the acts of God through the leader of Joshua and through the obedience of his people. It's in first and foremost the picture of a benevolent God who gives a land and takes responsibility for the promises and the people are called to obedience, every last one of them. And man, when you're standing on the brink of the promised land or some major decision, you, I don't know if I, if I ever asked a person a question that says, do you want to be successful? You don't have people raising their hand and said, no, not me. <laughs> I'm going to be a lazy slob my whole life, and I'm going to love it. Don't you want to experience some level of fulfillment, some level of success? You want it, but you don't want it from the wrong person, and you don't want it for the wrong reasons, and you want it because you're following the right truth. And when you're doing those things, you can find success even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of heartache, even in the midst of, of, of challenging decisions, even in the midst of political upheaval, challenges, all kinds of different uh, things going on in the culture, you can and I can stand firm because the promises of God are true. Well, here's one of the reasons why, uh, the first reason why they would experience success. One that we have said, but we will mention it again. The idea of the presence of God. Now, there is just something incredibly important about this issue of presence, isn't there? Now, you're just going to get tired of me talking about it because that's what it's all about in Joshua, is that his presence goes before the people 
Now, could you imagine, just picture yourself just for a moment, would you? As, as one of the individuals in that great community, Israel. You came, out of the, you came out of Egypt because he drew you out with signs and wonders. And he didn't just, like, partially get you out of there. He took everybody with him. They got to the brink of the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. And even before that, what does he do to show his presence? I mean, could you imagine, like, I don't know, like this question, like, I don't know, should we go out of Egypt or should we stay? And you got this glory cloud that reaches into the heavens, and you're like, well, let's see. Uh, he just did all these plagues. I'm just trying to figure this out, whether we really want to follow him. And we got a cloud standing before us, for goodness sake. I think I'll go that way. And yet even, get this, even in the midst of the, the pillar of cloud by day and the fiery cloud by night, they would get to the brink of the Red Sea and they could see the presence of God in the cloud and they would still say, take me back to Egypt. Why did you bring me out here? You know what that tells me? That tells me that you can have some very visible evidence and experience of the clear and utter presence of the Most High and still choose to not follow him. You can still choose to abandon his ways, abandon his principles, complain, slander, get angry, be frustrated, and then going, oh, I remember the days of old when it was good. And whatever your good time was, you begin to think, oh, if only those days would be brought back again. I would say to people on a frequent basis as I care for them, I will say to them, what if I could snap my fingers and give you everything your heart desired, but you wouldn't have the presence of God? Would you want it? And every one of us in our mind would take a breath and say, no. I don't care how many good earthly things, I don't care how many, how many cars, how many houses, how many pairs of jeans, how many whatever it is you have, without the presence of God, life makes no sense. It is, it, is, it is the duty of the believers to be so impacted by that truth that, that we say to one another, unless God goes before us, we're not going anywhere. See, in all the tabernacle in the wilderness wandering, the glory, the glory cloud of God and the pillar of a cloud during the day and the pillar of fire by night, when that cloud would move, they would move. And they had a visible presence Believer, today, be careful that you can see and experience all the gifts of a benevolent, majestic God and still say, I'm not going to be serious about my faith. It can happen. This is a testimony to the reality of that. We may not have a glory cloud. We, and that would be great, by the way. And like, which, I mean, there would be no GPSs at that point. Like, we're following the cloud. <laughs> Like the cloud is moved, and I can just hear Google saying it. God is on the move, believers. Do you not think and do you not really anchor your soul in the reality that every time, in every place, of every century, that God's plan was always continuing to unfold? There is, in a sense, not in a, there is in a real sense for God, there's not this doomsday perspective for God. 
for God, it's a climax of his ultimate redemptive history in which he continues day after day, month after month, year after year to put all the right people in place so that his plan will be accomplished. Don't fret so much in your own mind. But you think, who's in the White House? Who's at this point? Be responsible. Yeah, you got emails. You think about that. We want you to. But guess what? I mean, if people like Cyrus and Alexander the Great and Darius and all these ungodly kings in the Old Testament could be used to further God's ultimate timetable, then we want what God wants no matter what. And our duty is to be faithful in our time the way these people were called to be faithful in their time. The presence of God is, a, is not only something that is miraculous, but it's the presence of God that brings a level of personal stability. Now, could you imagine being a youngster as a parent, bringing your child out of the tent in the morning, and they're like, Daddy, what's that? <laughs> and you had the opportunity to explain to them the presence of the living God in your midst. Oh, moms and dads, you have, in a sense, the most greatest glory of God wrapped up in the inspiration and revelation of the truth of God. That you, time and time again, with no one stopping you in a free country like ours, to going into the living room, your bedroom or their room, and saying, grab your Bibles, because I want to show you your God and how faithful he is. He is present in the pages of the scripture. He is present in earth history from the times of old to the times of today. His presence brings us a stability. If God always completes his promises, then we have nothing to fear. And everything that will keep us being stable so that our faith does not waver, as James talked about. If you wonder, if you need wisdom, because you're, you, you don't want to be like the person who's shifting like the waves of the sea. You want to be somebody who's stable. What does the presence bring you? Stability. He did actually say what he said when he said it. This is one of the reasons why you should anchor your soul to the truths of the revelation of the Bible. Because it can be proven over and over and over again in earth history, in time and space. It is not some fictitious book that we go to and say, you know, I think they said there were giants in the land, but I just think they were a few inches taller. It means there were giants. One of the, the most incredible realities, and I want you to look for this because I'm going to give it to you this week in the form of a blog. A friend of mine, while I traveled to Israel, uh, who's, uh, who's an archaeologist who lives over in the country of Jordan, is now creating uh, a YouTube channel called Bible Expedition. And we just watched for our family devotions uh, a question that he put in there, were there giants in the land? Is there archaeological evidence? Oh, wait for it. You're going to love it. Okay? Now, don't go now. If I ever see everybody, they're glowing with the, with the thing. We're, shut it down. But reality is this is real truth of real time in real earth history. 
Because God's promises were anchored for real people in real time. Which means his principles are still good in our time. Because he's faithful even now. I just love the picture uh, for Joshua. You know, if, if you, ever, you ever see these kind of really cute pictures, and I always experienced the reality of it when my kids were little. Ever watched a little child who was, little, who's a, who's a bit fearful to go and be at a particular place with a whole bunch of people, and they're in the midst of a crowd, and you see those little feet pattering and running, running up to mom or dad, and all they want is to grab a hold of mom or dad's hand because they just want to feel the presence of something who, who they describe as stable and reliable. And as long as they have that hand, they can skip and jump and be excited, but the moment they let go, they're scared out of their mind. They don't know where they are, they don't know who they're with, but as long as they hold that hand, they're okay. As long as we hold the promises and the principles of God, we will be like those children who, who holds the most strongest hand, who has created the heavens and the earth, who completes his promises, will we'll have stability beyond measure, and will have a reliability that we are believing what God tells us to believe, and will never miss the promises that he has given to us. We can be like that. Christians are called to this. It's the basis for us as disciples living in this world as a mission. It is this reality that we see in Matthew chapter 28. And it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, here it is. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He doesn't just stop there. He rehearses it in, in Mark chapter 16, in a very similar passage. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. He wants you and I to know that his presence will always bring stability. But Christian, if you're not striving to be close to your God, the exact opposite will occur for you. You will be discouraged beyond measures and experience dark places. You will, you will experience life that is not successfully lived. You will say to yourself, uh, I don't know if this is worth living. When all of a sudden the presence of God was, isn't with you, you lose hope. It is the duty of the congregation of the church as well as it would have been the, the nation of Israel to lock arms together and say, I know it looks scary. I know there's giants in the land. I know you're concerned about your little ones. Your parents were too. But God is going with us and we will hold his hand and we will see him do great things that we will tell our children about, and they will tell their children about, and their children's children about, and we will stand in awe as we sit in houses we didn't build, in lands we never owned, experiencing the blessings of the Almighty. 
presence of God is such a precious thing, but that is one of the reasons why they could go, and this is one of the reasons that answers the question to Joshua in this discourse that Moses was dead, and it answers the question, will Joshua take up the mantle of Moses' leadership, and will he be successful? In and of himself, no. But with God's presence, yes. And if the people, if he modeled that, and he stuck to it, what they would see is not only God's presence, but they would experience his power. Look at verse 6. I mean, this is remarkable. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. I mean, he calls Joshua out to say, I want you to be strong. This idea of strength, uh, even as you look at, at, at the understanding of it, it's this, I, this is the idea of strength beyond an average level. Like there was something that was unique with Joshua and Caleb. I, I just know it. Because they're the only two that came back and had a good report after the 12 spies. And when these men came back, they were, had greater strength than the average man. What I would say is the 10 were average. Joshua and Caleb were above average. And God was calling Joshua to maintain that above average pursuit of strength in God. Believer, you've got to maintain that. You've got to work at it. If you just think that sitting around doing nothing is going to help you grow, wrong. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I mean, I've convinced myself at different times, like, I think I can get more blessings but not do as much of the work. And it never's happened yet in 44 years of my life, and yet there are times where I think, let's try it one more time. And it never happens. There is an effort that Joshua is called to be strong. It's commanded of him. It's not just like, well, if you think about it, try to pursue some above-average pursuit. He's saying, you've got to do this, Joshua. Now, as this fell to Joshua's shoulders as Moses was now dead, the urgency and the importance couldn't have rested on his shoulder at a greater time period. Joshua needed to think to himself, and all leaders of any area whether it's leaders as elders in the church or deacons or teachers or Sunday school teachers or Wednesday night teachers or employers, put this on your shoulders. It matters that you're a person of integrity. It matters because little eyes are watching how you live out your Christian life. Mom and dad, you've got little sets of eyes that are looking at you. And I wonder if perhaps sometimes they're thinking to themselves, I wonder why we never read the Bible. I wonder why we just, we don't seem to have family worship. I hear other kids talking about it. Over the years, I have heard story after story after story of young people who have grown up in homes who their moms and dads never opened up the Bible. Now that could be true because your parents might not have been believers. And I can understand that. But if you're a believer, and you have the presence of God in the pages of the Bible, oh, there couldn't be any more important duty for you as a mom and a dad to, to train your children, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, as they rise up, as they walk by the way, as they lie down. What are you teaching them? To love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. 
the power of God would go before them in the presence of the, of, of the cloud. And he says, don't only be strong and above average pursuit, that God himself would be the energizing agent of the whole pursuit of strength. He, he was, in a sense, saying, Joshua, be strong, and the way to be strong is to rest in my strength. Because you as a leader, Joshua, you're going to be as strong, you can be as strong as I am strong as long as you're holding my hand and you're following my ways and you're following my word. He said, be strong and be courageous. This idea of courage that comes in the face of adversity means the idea of facing fear without flinching. It, it reminds you of the picture of a battleground where an army stands at the brink of a battle and arrows are flying and swords are drawn and a man is standing before them as their general riding back and forth saying, we can do it. Don't flinch. He's saying, Joshua, you don't have to flinch in the face of fear because I'm with you. Your strength is because I'm powerful, not because you're powerful. Pay attention to what you're doing, and the more that you do that, you'll recognize that this battle is, 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 not, a tac is not won tactically. What you notice for Joshua isn't just, hey, I, I just went up to the mountain and wrote down for you the tactical measures of, as a general so you can lead the army. The battle is won by spiritual strength. And that is as true today as it was for Joshua. The battle today for your Christian life and the fight of faith and the fight against the powers of this dark world are won by Christ and in the power of Christ through the believer who's indwelt by the Spirit, who holds up the shield of faith that can quench every fiery dart of the wicked one. And you can hold it up, and it will last. And you can take unto yourself the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you can, you can defeat those things, those temptations, those desires, those thoughts that come into your mind. Because the power of Christ for the believer is not just with you, the New Testament said, it's in you. Through the indwelling work and the sealing work, according to Ephesians, of, of the Spirit of God. When he seals a believer, it's a response to his saving of that believer, and that sealing will never go away. You can rest assured that his power will go before you, and that, it, and that the Word of God, Christian, has not lost a sense of its potency. This is just as powerful today as it was for them. You've got to read it. You've got to be in it. You've got to see your God. Otherwise, you'll be tempted to let go of his hand. You will see his power or a power that he is doing, and you will attribute it to some other person or some other means. This is why in Matthew 7, he says that some people will say, Lord, Lord, have I not done great works in your name? Have I not done this in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. The presence and the power of God would go before Joshua and before his people. It would be the way that they would experience success. We don't have to live some defeated life as a Christian. Like, 
Well, what do you have? Well, I just have the Bible. I mean, <laughs> Christian, you have the Bible. You have the inspired, authoritative words of God written to you. They were not written by men according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. These were men who spoke from God as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. No man could do that. No man could write this book. But God used men to write the words he wanted us to hear so that we would have his presence and we could see the power of the written word. I think the power of the word is so incredible that at the very end of all times when, when he's going to do away with sin, it says at the very end of Revelation that the word of his mouth comes out and it just destroys it by his words. It is that that continues to bring and demonstrate the power of God. This was the power that resided behind David as he went to fight Goliath. And he could go out and say to this giant, who are you to stand before the Lord Almighty? Who are you to stand before the armies of the living God? And you know why David could do that? Because David knew God was behind him. No one else might be able to have sensed that or have seen it visibly, but David knew it by faith. And he went out I just would have loved to see it in person, wouldn't you? I mean, he picks up five stones. I mean, not a, not a sword, not a spear. I mean, he, you know, you just get the picture of David going and putting on Saul's armor. Like, what am I going to do with this? And he says, I'll just use a sling. Like, all right, go. And he starts whipping that sling. And lo and behold, the stone sinks in. And who defeats Goliath? God. Through this person, David, who lived by faith. We can be those people in our time. People who anchor our souls to the, to the presence and the power of the living God through his word. And stand as David did against so many, uh, against so many different odds saying, well, God can't do that in our time. Believer, God can do whatever he wants. And our goal is to live by faith and be those kind of people and call to the Lord God of heaven and say, bring revival to the hearts of the people in whom you came to save. Oh, I so badly do not want any person going to hell. I don't wish it on the worst of enemy or the worst individual or the greatest of criminal. Because the worst thing about hell is that there is no presence of God that will ever be there for all eternity. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, oh, why is this whole presence thing such an important thing? That's why. Because apart from repentance and faith, you, you have sin in your life that will send you to hell for eternity without the presence of God. There will be no reaching up and holding his hand. You will come to a point where you only will remember and long for a time when you knew you could have chosen and you didn't. And you realize that you're there 
because you rejected him. Oh, don't let that be your condition. If you're here and you're not a believer and you see your sin and you desire the presence of God, God wants you to know him. Would you go and start reading in the book of John or find another brother or sister that you know is a believer and say, can you just start reading the Bible with me? I just want to understand this. Ask them what the gospel is. Do something to be able to say, where do I find this person? I want to know his presence. And if you seek diligently, you'll find him because God wants you to find him. He's not hiding from you. He says, knock, and I will answer. Knock, and it will be opened to you. The ways of eternal life through repentance and faith in my son, Jesus, who took all of my wrath and was poured it on him so that you could have eternal life. If you're wondering that this morning, would you find one of our elders, find somebody and just say, I gotta know this. Find DT out at the, in the elders, come and find me, find somebody here, say, I just have to know for sure. And believer, if, if you're wondering, you know, can you really know? Yes. 1 John 3.15 says these things are written that you might know that you can have eternal life. Oh, those are such precious promises. We have his presence. We have his power. And now, not only that, but we have his promises. Look at verse 7. Remarkable statements. Only be strong and very courageous, reiterating these very truths. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded to you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This carefulness, this caution, this, this attention to detail. God wants you to have it. That's why he's written your word, the word of God, so that you would say, well, I can know. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says he's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You are not, as a believer, going to get to heaven and God pull a fast one on you and go, well, I didn't tell you that. That's why you didn't know and couldn't live a successful Christian life. Everything you need for life and godliness, Peter says, is found right here. Everything for all of your, your challenges, all of your despair, all of your discouragements, all of your woes, all of your anxieties, all of your fears, all of it. God, has, has in his, with his presence and with his power and with the indwelling work of the Spirit, can help you anchor your soul to the living God so that you are careful to follow it. And when you do, you find hope, you find revival in your soul, you find encouragement and hope. You see other people who want the same things and are doing the same things. And you're thinking, I like those people. I want to be with those people more. Because they're careful. Oh, as a chapel, as a whole congregation, we are only as strong as each one of us individually are committed to the truths of God's word. Don't think that you can just live however you want and, and then be a part of the body, and then you think that that doesn't affect the body. It affects us. 
every one of us should go home and say, am I being serious about my faith? Because I don't want to be the one who brings what God is doing down. I want to be a person who is living with carefulness and caution in a way that this word describes, this carefulness is the word that describes keeping watch over or guarding yourself, observing it. Now, it's observing it and guarding it with an, intent, an intentional purpose for the purpose of conformity. See, that's the point. Carefulness in the scripture is not just about how much you can know. It's about how much you can conform yourself to its truths so that when you do so, those truths lived out look like Jesus Christ. That you will be transformed into his image each and every time. Well, as we think about these, this is the desire, the, the heart content. This was the very perspective that we find in Psalm chapter 1, is it not? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly ungodly or stands in the seat in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night he's like a tree that's planted by streams of living water whose fruit is bore in every single season but it's not that way for the wicked the wicked is it's not so for them they're like the chaff that the wind drives away Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Security in the conquest was always dependent upon faithfulness to the very words, principles, and promises of God. The moment that they didn't take those seriously, as we will find out in stories in the conquest, what happens when you don't follow the detail that God instructed you. We'll see it time and time again. Believer, are you following this? The truth? Are you paying attention to detail in your devotions? Are you saying, are you asking yourself the question, what is it that I really need to work on? Where is it that my mind continues to dwell on that is not, that is not godly, but that is earthly? Am I starting to, uh, am I asking myself the question, what are the areas in my life that I'm, I'm paying more attention to earthly things than heavenly things? Are you, are you journaling and saying, you're like, there's something I got to work on and here's what it is. And by God's grace, I'm going to have other people help me too. And you anchor yourself to paying attention to the detail. And you're desirous to be that tree who's sitting by that stream of living water, whose roots go deep. You know how your roots can go deep? Your understanding of the word of God. An understanding of the revelation for the sake of transformation. It's not information for the sake of information. It's information for the sake of transformation. Be careful, believer, to follow the paths of God so that as we think about these things and the promises that God gives to us, uh, that we come to this particular conclusion. We come all the way back around that wherever God calls his people to go, whatever God calls his people to do, that they're going to have success as long as their faith stays focused on his promises and principles. This was the mission of the promised land. Follow me and I will be with you. Is the same message that Jesus went around to the 12 and said, follow me and I will make you fishers and men and you will, you will see the glories of God 
in the person of his son. The more we stay as a congregation paying attention to the detail of his word, we can be secured in the mission that God has before us. Ours is not to conquer a land, but ours is to be faithful against the wiles of the devil, to stand firm in the face of temptation, to stand as people who are filled with hope together. And we can do that, and the, the more we do it, his presence and his power and his promises are paid attention to, the more strength we will have for the task before us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the words that are penned in Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Our strength as was Joshua's, as was the people of God, of Israel, as they passed over, as we will see in the coming weeks. Our strength is found in your presence and in your power and in your promises. Help us never to forget it. In your name we pray. Amen.